0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by marine biologist Carly Jackson to talk about her work as a shark scientist and about her new book, Sharks What Do Great Whites, Hammerheads, and Whale Sharks Get Up To All Day? Welcome to the show, Carly. Hi, Christina.
1: Nice. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I am so excited that you're here and um, for everything you're going to share with us today. Before we dive into the book, uh, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes. So uh, my name is
1: Carly Jackson Bohannon. I just added the Bohannon like about eight months ago, got married. Uh, So I am a marine biologist. I study sharks and sea turtles. So I kind of get the both best of both worlds (laughs) and i am currently working as the director of communications for an organization called minorities and shark sciences or miss for short Uh, it's an organization that i actually co-founded so i am one of the founders and i uh, work with our communications doing a lot of the marketing social media and communicating with donors and things like that Um, i am really passionate about sharks i joke and say that sea turtles kind of pay the bills they've historically paid my bills and that's how i got into sea turtles and everything but um sharks are something i've been super passionate about for as long as i can remember um and i'm originally from detroit michigan actually and uh, grew up accessing the ocean through books and things like that so um i moved to florida for my undergrad. And I've been in Florida ever since because I hate being cold and I'm never going back to live in the cold. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, so that's just a little bit about me. Thank you for that. Um, you shared about what got you into this, but how did you know this was a, a field to go into? How did you, how did you know this was going to lead to a job for you?
1: So I really, I'll be honest, I had no idea when I was younger that you could really do it as a job. I just remember seeing it on TV and I was like, I guess a marine biologist is on TV all the time, like doing stuff with sharks and being on boats. So, um I didn't really get a good look at what the job, you know, like what I could be um until maybe like high school around that time where I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go to college and things like that. So, um yeah, I didn't really have a specific job in mind growing up and there like all I knew was I wanted to work with sharks and I was like at some point it's gonna happen. I don't know what I'll be doing but I know it'll be with sharks.
0: (laughs) Did you find a mentor in a a college professor who pointed you towards a career studying sharks? So I kind
1: of have a non-traditional way of getting into this field because um, I wasn't guided very well coming into this field. So um, all I knew was, like I said, I knew I wanted to work with sharks. I went to college that had a good marine biology program, but I still didn't really have much guidance. Um, How I got into sharks was reading a book on sharks when I was six. That's really how, um, that's what Uh, captivated me. I read this book and I was just like sharks are the coolest things and I want to be a shark scientist. So um, after that, that's really when I started being more serious about like reading lots of books on sharks and really getting into it. Um, But in regards to like mentors or anything, I really didn't get any of my own mentors until grad school around that time. So after I graduated from undergrad and really was like trying to figure out what the next step was and how um, I would really get to that next step. Um, I got a really good mentor the summer after I graduated from undergrad and then um, in undergrad is when I started getting a lot more mentors that would help me kind of shape the pathway that I wanted to go into and really encouraged me and gave me a lot of um, good advice and uh, really pushed me in this career.
0: Was that part of what led you to be so passionate about mentoring other young people coming up, that this could be a field for them? Yes, for
1: sure. So uh, one uh, one of the things that my organization does uh, miss, we focus on really making shark science an accessible field for gender minorities of color uh, because this is a field that has just historically been we've been very underrepresented like as a black woman i came into this field and didn't see myself reflected in this field at all and really didn't meet any other black woman in the field until um, i was about to graduate from grad school so that entire time i had never really Connected with, you know, other mentors or just other peers and things like that. Um, But that's definitely like my own journey is what put what um, gave me the passion to really help others along the journey so that it would be a lot easier for them. um, And so they had, you know, providing them with resources that I didn't have coming up in this field, and that's really what has made me very passionate about, like, mentoring and trying to make this field more accessible for other people that look like me.
0: Minorities in Shark Sciences uh, has a book, um, and I recently got it, um, and I've, I've had a chance to take a peek, and it touches on this. There's many chapters that talk a lot about sharks, but there's also sections about how to be an ally, about um, change that needs to happen in the field altogether. And in the opening, it says that it was a very white male field. It's not a meritocracy. And if you want to do something and there aren't people doing it who look like you, that's a sign that it's not a meritocracy.
1: Yeah. So it's like our biggest thing is, you know, that whole book, the theme of it was inclusive research. So having, um, you know, collaborating on different things that with like minded people and with people that look like you, because it's like like you said before, it's a very white male dominated field. And it's still like it was historically and it still is (laughs) is getting better now, but um, it's still dominated by that demographic and um doing things like that book which is bringing together all different types of gender minorities of color uh and showing you know that representation that there are different people in this field they're not it's not only a white male um demographic in this field there's more than that so um that was the big thing with the book was you know uh other minorities of color um, or gender minorities of color coming together and sharing their research and saying like we're out here doing this research too.
0: And in many different parts of the world and um, I had a chance to read through uh, the bios of some of the contributors and they're from all different parts of the world mm-hmm. and they share the common concern about sharks and their habitat and conservation and overfishing
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's not, you know, we tend to think that America is the center of everything, (laughs) but, um, there's just, you know, there's so much research happening around the world by the people that are indigenous to those lands or, you know, people that actually live there. And, um, there's, uh, a lot that we can learn from those researchers, and instead of us going into those countries and doing that research, just letting you know the natives of that land actually, um, or the people that live there, do the research. That is um, that's a really big thing in this field, and just you know being able to allow those researchers to share their research in that book I think is really cool and really spreads that message that you know there's lots of good research and lots of different research happening all around the world and these people also care about sharks it's not just us that cares about the sharks it's everyone um that benefits from you know them being in their ecosystem
0: well link information about that book to the show notes um i want to turn now to your book um sharks a day in the life which was published by neon squid um you referenced earlier that your first book on sharks you were six years old and it changed the whole path of your life um how did you get connected up with neon squid to create this project for them so the it's, it's
1: just a really funny story. And um, just overall ironic how I came to <laughs> writing a book on sharks. And that's how I got into shark science. But Neon Squid actually contacted me because I believe someone heard me on a podcast like this. <laughs> someone either heard me on a podcast or saw me on a video somewhere. And they're like, Oh, like she seems like someone who's fun, who would be good to write this book. And apparently they had been looking for a shark expert to, um, or shark scientist to write this book. And they reached out to me to see if I would be interested at all. And I Definitely never saw myself as an author or even like ever writing a book. So I was just like, um, I guess I'll see how it is and or, you know, just see what you have to offer and um, go from there. But they reached out to me we had a meeting. And uh, once I learned more about the process of writing the book and uh, other books that they've done before, I just thought it was really cool and jumped to the
0: opportunity. And the introduction in the book really tells us about your mission of public education that you've shared already. But it really comes through that you want other girls who are now like you were when you were six, looking around for books and wondering who gets to study these things to know it's them. They get to study these things. Um it, the book takes us through uh, an entire day. It starts at 8 in the morning, goes all the way until 11 o'clock at night, and each double-page spread introduces us to another shark. Um, I'm curious how you narrowed down which sharks you wanted to include. You tell us early on there are... Over 500 different known species of sharks and more work still needs to be discovered about how many species there really are. Um, How do you narrow that down into a 48 page book? Oh my gosh. That was the
1: hardest thing I would say. (laughs) Well, well, one of the hardest things was narrowing it down. But um, what really the easiest part for narrowing it down was the fact that there are some species that are not exactly, um, what's what's the word? Uh, There's some species that are just not as, quote unquote, popular (laughs) as the other ones. So, you know, like, everyone knows what a great white shark is. Everyone knows what, like, a tiger shark is. Like, you know those... Uh, species that you hear on the news or that you see on Shark Week or Shark Fest, but I really wanted to focus on species that were, uh, you know, that didn't have as much love as those big charismatic species. So um, I chose species that. that I knew people either wouldn't have really heard of before or just species that aren't talked about that might just be glossed over. Um, And I also wanted to choose species that had very unique roles in the environment and like little niches that they fit into um, that I thought would be cool for kids and really everyone to learn. So that's how I... The the process of narrowing it down definitely was um, difficult, but I do specifically remember... (laughs) Uh, them asking me to like oh like can you include this species or like can you include this one like a type of shark i was like you know i want to put species in here that no one's ever heard of that you look at those you look at the shark and you're just like what is that (laughs) what is that and you learn something completely new about that shark and um are just because like I said, that's how I got excited about sharks. I learned some learned about something that I had absolutely no idea about, found out how absolutely amazing and just like awesome sharks were, and that's what got me excited. So that was my goal with uh, narrowing down those species was to give you all something that you might not have give you a species that you might not have heard of before and also learn about like how why that species is even important in that environment.
0: The Neon Squid series is technically written for children, but like all good nonfiction uh, children's books, it's a great starter book for adults who are curious about a topic they don't know much about. And this book has a wonderful glossary, and it has amazing illustrations. It's rare when the author gets to talk directly to their illustrator. Did you send photos, or how did you work with them to make sure that the details were accurate? So I definitely sent
1: photos. Um, as I was, like I said, the process of writing the book was really, um, I won't say easy. It was very, uh, is collaborative. So I gave them spreads and then they would give me feedback. And then I would send, um, like after writing what a shark was going to do, I would send pictures of what I thought would be, uh, appropriate for, you know, what that shark would do. So I definitely had to send them a lot of, um, pictures of different sharks and, you know, say like what I wanted the shark to be doing. And then they would send me back drafts or sketches and I would just approve them or say like, hey, like you're missing a gill (laughs) or like you're missing a fin here or like a marking here. So, yeah, it was really cool to be able to collaborate and um, work with the illustrator and really... See my ideas come to life because once I started seeing like the full spreads that were just full color, like I the The illustration in here is just absolutely beautiful. Like it's just, I love it, and it's um like it's cartoony but also realistic, and it's just, the colors pop. And um, I just, I absolutely am in love with the illustration in this book, and I think she did an amazing job bringing to life all of the ideas I had in my head. Because like literally every single spread is exactly what I had in my head <laughs> when I was sending the pictures. So that was really cool.
0: They are definitely frameable art. One thing that comes through is they each have their own distinct anatomy, even though they are all sharks. So I can see why you had to give specific notes, because someone who's not a shark scientist wouldn't know those finer details. And yet they are so beautifully rendered. Um, You let us know in the book that sharks live all over the world. Have you been able to travel to various places and meet any of these sharks? Yeah,
1: some uh, definitely. I guess I wouldn't say I've been able to travel all over the world to see these sharks. That's still a goal of mine, Um, like to see like an epaulette shark in the wild or um, a whale shark out in the wild. But I've definitely traveled mostly within the Caribbean and seen uh, hammerhead sharks. I've seen my fair share of lemon sharks, bull sharks. Um, But the hammerhead sharks are definitely one of my favorites to go see because they're just like so majestic. But Um, It's on my bucket list to see uh, great white sharks and whale sharks in the wild. Um, They, you know, it's um, they uh, occasionally come around here in Florida, but they're not like frequent. They don't like this isn't somewhere that they regularly live. They kind of just pass through. But but yeah, it's definitely a goal of mine to travel more and see more sharks that I wouldn't be able to see in my own backyard.
0: The book opens at 8 a.m. off the coast of Ireland with a basking shark, which you tell us is slow and as big as a truck. Um, At 9 a.m., we go to the Bahamas where there are hammerheads. Since hammerheads are one of your favorites, do you want to talk to us about them?
1: Yes, for sure. So hammerheads, um, they are... It's funny because they're one of my favorites to swim with, for sure. I wouldn't say they're probably in my top five species, but they're definitely one of my favorites to swim with because they are just so majestic. And I say that a lot, like all sharks are majestic, but the hammerhead in particular, um, the great hammerhead, they can get up to like 15 plus feet long. Uh, they've got these huge heads that can see almost... Uh, 360 degrees. So their eyes are on the sides of their head on that uh, hammer, which is called a cephalofoil, um, which I think I also mentioned in the book. But um, they also have this dorsal fin that is about as tall as they are deep if that makes sense. So like their dorsal fin is like one of the biggest <laughs> in all species because it's just so tall. And that is what distinguishes great hammerheads from a lot of different other species and other uh, hammerhead species as well. Um, but in the book, I talk about the hammerhead as uh, hunting for its favorite prey, which is stingrays. Uh, so all sharks have these sensory organs in their face called ampullae of Lorenzini. And it allows them to detect electrical fields in the water so hammerheads in particular they have these organs spread out across their cephalofoil or that hammer uh, part of their head and it's spread out so it makes them more efficient in using that and uh so it's literally i also say this in the book but they're literally a living metal detector so they're just they use that head to scan around on the sand and they're looking for that prey that might be um, uh, buried under the sand which is what the stingray was in the book it's buried under the sand and um, the hammerheads also uh, specialize in eating stingrays because they're they have these small mouths like at the bottom of their head and they use their head to pin the stingray down and then they just kind of like eat it like while it's pinned down (laughs) because they have those uh you know their mouth is right up under their head so even though they're using their head to pin the stingray down they're still able to um eat the stingray like that so i just think they're the way they hunt and um all their uh Uh, quote-unquote superpowers. I just think it's really cool.
0: At 10 a.m., we meet the shortfin mako shark, who you tell us is the fastest shark in the world. And at 11 a.m., we meet the lemon shark in the mangrove forest. That sounds like it's Right in your neighborhood. Do you want to tell us about that part? Yes. So um,
1: I'll note that Smaco sharks are my third favorite shark ever because they are the fastest sharks in the world. And I was a uh, competitive swimmer um, going, growing up and all through college. So I was like, I relate. Like, I, I think you're cool because you're a fast swimmer. And I was a fast swimmer too. <laughs> um, but that and the um, lemon sharks definitely are in my backyard. So the mangroves, uh, we have mangrove forests, you know, usually if you live on a coast, you, there's lots of mangroves and especially, uh, in Florida and the Caribbean, we've got lots of mangrove trees and mangrove trees are, these trees that live like halfway in the water so their roots are in the water they live in brackish water so uh, salty water not completely salt water but it's salty fresh water pretty much (laughs) and uh, mangroves they have these or specifically red mangroves they have these uh, roots that look like stilts coming out of them and they're just like standing in the water pretty much and mangroves are really important for a lot of Coastal communities because those roots help keep the sand together and prevent erosion. And mangroves also help. uh, uh, What's the word? Um, Slow down a lot of wave action from hurricanes and like just large wave events. So they they protect the coast. The mangroves protect the coast and um, and. Including, the, they protect the coast and they protect the animals that are also uh, in the water with them. So mangroves are also nursery grounds. So a lot of um, baby sharks and baby fish hang out in the mangroves because those roots provide a lot of hiding places from larger predators. So mangroves just overall have such an important role in our environment. Like they protect us and they protect a lot of the baby fish and the baby sharks. So uh, lemon sharks in particular, they are very frequently found in the mangroves. The the mama lemon sharks, they give birth near the mangrove so that the, the uh, baby lemon sharks can just go straight in there and they'll be uh, completely protected because uh, anything, because, you know, sharks, they do start off as babies. <laughs> They're small. They're not, they don't start off as like these apex predators. So they also are going to need that protection. So the lemon sharks heavily use the mangrove areas for protection from a lot of uh, larger fish, like big Barracuda could probably go after a lemon shark. So they like to um, hang out in those areas to stay protected. But there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of research on lemon sharks and baby lemon sharks and like their um, social interactions and really how they use those mangroves. Um, And I think it's really cool. And I was really happy to include those in the book because I, the picture in the book actually, the illustration was inspired from uh, a colleague of mine. She takes pictures of uh, lemon sharks in mangroves and she has this beautiful picture of this lemon shark among the roots in the mangroves in the water. And I was just like, that's so pretty. I have to have that in the book. So that's where that picture was inspired from. But um, yeah, it's uh, definitely mangrove environments are just very important. And I was uh, definitely wanted to make sure to include that in the book.
0: You mentioned earlier that it's on your bucket list to see epaulette sharks in the wild. And at 3 p.m., we meet them in Australia. I had never heard of them before. The book introduces me to so many things I never heard of before, which you said was your goal and it comes through. Um, Can you tell us about these walking sharks?
1: Yes, and makes me so excited that you had never heard of them before and you were introduced to them through the book. (laughs) Um, But yeah, epaulette sharks, my second favorite sharks uh, because they're just, they're so cute. And I'm sure the book also kind of exuded that uh, cuteness with the epaulette shark but um, they're these small sharks that have this incredible superpower that allows them to stay out of water for a very long time like up to an hour I believe um, they can stay out of the water uh, and You know, sharks, they're fish, pretty much, and they need the water to breathe. Uh, But what's really cool about epaulets, and I don't think I go into detail in the book, but I'll go into slight detail with this podcast, Um, but they actually are able to secrete a chemical in their brain that shuts down parts of their brains that they don't need. So if they don't need the part of the brain um, that, like, you know, needs oxygen for breathing, then they'll just shut that down. And then um, they basically only use the essential functions of their brain to be able to walk around. um, And they're essentially holding their breath the whole time. So uh, being able to shut down parts of their brains makes it so they don't need as much oxygen. So that's what allows them to Function out of the water like that. And that's another way that they will hunt. So when the tides get low in those tide pools and the epaulets come out and they are hunting, they usually will hunt in those tide pools because they're. Prey is trapped in those little pools, and they can't really get out. They can't swim away, so the epaulets just walk right over there, and um, you know, just be able to get their prey in a lot easier way. They won't really have to chase their prey; it's just right there in a on a platter, pretty much <laughs> in that tide pool. But um, and I always think it's funny, like we're describing an epaulette walking, but it's really like. Uh, think of, like, a salamander, like, trying to walk. That's really how epaulets look. They, It's not, like, a very graceful thing. They're kind of just... Move like slither, almost a slithering. Looks sort of like a snake, but the best way I can describe it is like a salamander. But um, that's really how they move, is like a salamander. And they have these pectoral fins. That's the side fins on the sharks, uh, and they're really flexible. And their pecs are also uh a little muscular. So that's how they're able to use them to kind of push themselves off the rocks and just um use that, um, use them to push themselves off the, off the rocks. There we go. And like slither a little bit, um, across the tide pools. So they're just, they're really cool sharks. They're super cute. And they're a smaller species of shark too. They're like, they can maybe get up to like a little bit more than a foot, like two feet maybe. Um, but that's another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that most sharks are like, five feet or less (laughs) most sharks are most shark species um only can get up to like five feet and um not all sharks are these huge giant great whites or tiger sharks and um a lot of the sharks species are small guys so we gotta appreciate the small guys
0: we do get a sense of what different body types they have and their different skills and their different Um, diet that they eat, but one of the other things the book highlights is they even have different breathing techniques. You just told us how the epaulette shark can hold their breath for an hour, which as a swimmer, that I'm super impressed. Um, I would love to be able to hold my breath longer than I can. Um, But with the nurse shark, they have a completely different breathing technique uh, even, even than that. Can you talk about the nurse shark?
1: Yes, so The nurse shark is my number one favorite. I love how we kind of went from three to one (laughs) in my uh, favorite sharks. But the nurse shark is my absolute favorite shark. I am a little bit biased because they were my uh, study animal in my thesis. So that's why I love them so much. But they're also just like really cute and they just like chill at the bottom. But um, nurse sharks they have this type of breathing called buccal pumping. And there's a few other shark species that also have this type of breathing, uh, but mostly in like the Atlantic, uh, like the uh, West Atlantic, The nurse sharks are one of the few that actually will be able to buccal pump. And um, buccal pumping is when they use their cheek muscles to suck in water and pass it through their gills. Now, uh, most shark species are what we call ram ventilators. And that is when you have to keep swimming to get that water to pass through your gills. So, uh, you know, you might have heard that if a shark stops swimming, it'll die. Uh, That's true for some sharks, but not all. And um, since the nurse shark is not a ram ventilator, they bugle pump, they're able to just rest at the bottom. So they'll sit at the bottom under this coral and just use their cheek muscles to suck in the water and pass it through their gills. Uh, They also have a uh, secondary breathing that really they don't really use it for breathing it's more for clearing food while they're eating um, but it's a little hole on their head and it's called a spiracle. so it's also connected to like breathing and everything and getting oxygen but it's mostly used for like clearing food and um, But yeah, so nurse sharks, they uh, also use that buccal pumping to eat. So they've got like one of the fastest prey captures of any species, which means that they can as soon when they see their prey, they'll just suck it up and it's gone. So they'll use their cheek muscles to just suck up the prey and just crush it with their teeth. And they do this usually with like lobsters or crab or like a conch. So like a conch shell, they can crush that with their teeth and they can just like suck up the conch. From inside the shell uh, Which I think is pretty cool And um, yeah so it's They also I think I've read a paper Saying that their suction force Was like as strong as like Seven vacuums or something Seven of those really strong vacuums So uh, nurse sharks Are fun fact also one of the Worst sharks to ever get bit by Because even though They look like they've got like A small mouth it's because of that Bugle pumping they can suck on to whatever they're biting and they can just not let go if they don't want to. And, um, I've tagged a couple of nurse sharks. So in my research we do, um, I do some field work with some collaborators and we've tagged some nurse sharks and, um, there have been times where we have hooked a nurse shark, but it wasn't actually hooked in its jaw. You pull it all the way up, and the whole time it's just hanging onto the hook. Like, it just has the hook in its mouth. Like, it's not actually hooked in the side of its mouth. It's just holding onto it. (laughs) So that is how strong their um, suction force and, like, their bite force is. So, well, not exactly bite force, but just that's how strong their grip is. And if you get bit by a nurse shark, usually... It's something that you did and you just, like, irritated it and it bit you. Uh, That's usually how nurse shark bites go. Uh, They're provoked and then they'll bite. And um, if that happens, usually, like, it is just, it's very, very hard to get the shark off because they have just sucked on and kind of just clamped on. So... Definitely one of the worst sharks to get bit by. Thankfully, I've never gotten bitten. I know someone who did get bit by a small nurse shark. But um, yeah, they are feisty little things, but I love them. And I made sure to put lots of nurse sharks in this book because they're my favorite.
0: We do meet them twice. We meet them um, around two o'clock or around one o'clock uh, in Belize. And then we come back to them at 8 o'clock because they're nocturnal. Um, You introduce us to the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef, which is the second largest reef in the world. Is that one of the places you've gotten to visit?
1: Yes. So nurse sharks uh, were, I think I said this earlier, they were my study animal for my thesis. And I actually went to Belize. I stayed in Belize for two months to study the nurse sharks there. So that is where... That reference comes from. So the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef, like right off of that reef is where I was doing most of my research. I was looking at the effects of tourism and like feeding tourism on the nurse sharks there. Um, But yeah, so that's where that reference comes from.
0: People don't encroach in this story very often, but we do have snorkelers who uh, disturb a shark and the shark has to move. And we also... See people again at five o'clock in the section called Hook, where the marine biologists are studying a short, thin mako shark. Why did you choose only to bring people in twice? I know you're very concerned about shark habitats.
1: Yeah, so I had to make sure to, um, you know, bring in people so that we can see those shark human interactions, because it is something that, you know, might not happen super often, but it happens. And I wanted to make sure that was uh, portrayed in the book, you know, like a realistic situation, why would a nurse shark even move from the place that it's napping? probably because a human was snorkeling and it, it got startled. And I didn't want to make it seem like, oh, it was a bad thing that this human like, came around and was snorkeling and scared the nurse shark. Like It's just something that happens. And um, I just thought it was uh, important to include that. And also, especially in the spread uh, called Hook, Uh, where we are introduced to scientists. Uh, I thought that that was very important to show uh, to all audiences because uh, shark science is something that you don't really, you might not know exactly all the inner workings of it, like why are they doing this? Um, How do they even tag a shark? And like, what are they using? What are the different equipment that they're using? So I wanted to make sure to include that in the book so that people have a little bit of an idea of how shark science might work and what a um, field workup would look like. And also showing that uh, the shark scientists are also concerned about, you know, the well being or the the welfare of the animal and not just like, oh, like we've got this shark on the side of the boat and we're just gonna do all these things without even caring about the shark might be breathing or not. So um yeah, so I w- just wanted to make sure to include that in the book. And also if you'd notice the a lot of the representation and the scientists um are, you know, people of color and i wanted to make sure that was represented in the book so that other um other kids would be able to you know see themselves represented in the book
0: you mentioned earlier that you had done tagging and in the section called hook we we see how they're doing that for listeners can you describe what that process is Yes. So the tagging that
1: I personally do, I don't use, uh, like satellite tags, but for the most part, um, it is a similar process. So uh, in the book, it is a Mako shark that's getting tagged, uh, with a satellite tag so that they can follow her movement and all that good stuff. Um, and the process that they, uh, the whole workup process is very similar to what I do out in the field. So um, they take blood, they take uh, they took measurements. Um, and they uh, I think they also took like other samples and that's exactly what I do in the field so we'll go out we'll set hooks uh, we'll do what's called like just scientific shark fishing and um, once we do get an animal uh, depending on the boat that I'm on like each boat kind of does it a little different but sometimes if it's a really big shark you'll put it on a platform that's in the water while everyone goes and uh, restrains the shark and then you make sure that the shark's able to breathe by putting a a PVC pipe in the mouth, and then uh, turning on the water flow. So it's a PVC pipe that is pretty. Much, it's almost like a um, pacifier <laughs> for the shark. So it gives them something to bite on, and there's water flow through it, so it's allowing them to breathe. Um, so during that time, we'll take measurements. Uh, we'll take um, what's called a fin clip sample, where you just cut off a tiny piece of uh, what's called a trailing end of their dorsal fin, which is equivalent to us cutting off a fingernail, so it just grows back. And um, we use that to look at genetic information. Uh, We also take blood from the shark. We use that to look at, you know, any different physiological um, things with the shark, like stress hormones, um, other hormones, and just uh, like bacteria, things like that. Um, We also take what's called a biopsy. So just like if you went to the dermatologist and they did the biopsy, uh, we would also take a biopsy from the shark. And we use that sample to look at what's called stable isotope analysis, which is looking at like, using a bunch of different chemistry to see where in the food chain the shark might fall. So um, it kind of helps us see what the shark has been eating, um, what type of prey it's been eating. You can see if uh, if the prey might change during different seasons. Um, But yeah, every sample that we take has a purpose, is trying to answer some type of question about the shark. And um, yeah, it's very similar to what was portrayed in the book. Now in the book, they use a satellite tag, I usually use what's called like dart tags, which are just little tags that are just pieces of plastic pretty much (laughs) that you stick in the shark. Um, Satellite tags are like thousands of dollars. So it's not something that's regularly used. Usually you only have like two or three that you put on certain sharks that you're trying to, um, you know, look at their movement. And satellite tags are mostly used for pelagic sharks. So sharks like the mako shark, which are open water species. So species that just live out in the open ocean, don't really come anywhere near land and um, just live their entire lives out in the open ocean. And satellite tags are the easiest or the best way to really uh, study those animals and where they move, how they migrate and things like that. But um, definitely was very happy to include that piece in the book and to show everyone that you know, this is what shark science is, and um, it's really cool, and, you know, this, we're still trying to learn a lot about sharks, and there's still a lot that we don't know.
0: The book has, in addition to taking us through a A long day that starts at 8 a.m. and ends at 11 p.m. It also has several double-page spreads that take us through uh, distinct things about sharks. One is um, the spread that takes us through their anatomy, and it shows us the different kinds of fins that you've been describing throughout our time together today. Um, There's also a spread that compares different shark teeth, And then there's another one that uh, compares different types of shark skin that different uh, species of shark have that are very different from each other. When we get to 11 p.m., we meet an extremely unusual shark. And I know we're running out of time, but I have to ask you about the cookie cutter shark and its bioluminescence.
1: Yes, uh, definitely wanted to include that one because they are, one, kind of creepy looking. I won't lie. They're very creepy looking. But also, it's probably a shark that you've never heard of before and that, you know, is just something where you're just like, what is that? Um, it's also a small shark, like very, very small, like maybe like a foot at the most is how big that they get. But the cookie cutter shark is something out of nightmares, um, and it's a shark that lives in the deep ocean, but then comes up out of the deep ocean at night to feed on uh, mammals, mostly like marine mammals or really any large, large animal in the uh, in the ocean, and they take the reason why they're called the cookie cutter shark is because they literally take like perfect round chunks out of animals. And uh, I've, I've actually been to the fish store before and um, like a fish market. And I've seen fish that have a perfectly like, a circular hole in the side of them, and that's literally from a cookie cutter shark, which is just crazy to see in a fish market sometimes. But um, yeah, these sharks go up and they just take these huge chunks out of animals, and that is how they feed. That is their. Um, that is uh, how they get their food, and they don't really—at least I don't. From what I know, I don't believe they uh, like hunt in schools, and it's like a it's like a piranha <laughs> going at a uh, dolphin, and just like they're taking chunks out of the dolphin. But um, usually, it's just like one shark that'll go up, and that's just how they feed is uh, taking these chunks out of animals. And it's a little, it's definitely creepy. Um, and you know, because they are these deep ocean sharks, they. Um, They have what's called bioluminescence and their body can glow. Uh, It's just like a biological phenomenon that they um, are able to glow. And um, a lot of deep ocean sharks have that um, ability to glow, but... Uh, the cookie cutter it's also a um a way to like lure prey so if you're just out swimming around and you see like a bright light you are probably going to start swimming towards that light and uh that's how the cookie cutter will like lure lure its prey uh to them and then take their chunks.
0: you tell us in the opening of the book that You feel they're very misunderstood animals and that they are intelligent creatures and they're clearly um, your favorite animals. While you have the listeners' attention, what are a few misconceptions and myths you'd like to clear up about these misunderstood animals in the few minutes we have left?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess the first one is the most obvious one is that uh, sharks, the myth is that sharks are out to get us and they are hunting humans and they like the taste of us, uh, but that is completely false. Uh, sharks, evolutionarily, they have been designed to eat specific things within their environment. So like, whether that be seals, dolphins, or like smaller fish or crustaceans, things like that, we've historically never been on the menu. And um, most shark attacks you hear about, it's a shark that is biting and leaving the area and not a shark that's actually consuming a person because uh, we really don't taste good to them <laughs> they don't taste they they don't think we taste good so sharks are um not out to get us and the majority of attacks that happen are due to either like bad visibility so the shark can't really see what you are so they'll just take a bite to see what you are and then They'll be like, oh, that is not exactly what I thought you were." So I'm gonna go somewhere else. But that's unfortunate for us because if a big shark takes a bite, even if it's just a taste, that usually doesn't end well for us. Um, but yeah, shark attacks mostly happen because of uh, mistaken identity. That is the um, main thing that um, that's like the yeah, mistaken identity is the the fact the uh, similar factor in all most shark attacks and um another myth that i believe needs to be told is that the megalodon is 100 percent extinct it is well the myth is that it is still alive like hiding somewhere in the deep trenches but that is a myth it is actually extinct because if it were extant it would Probably be decimating a lot of our whale populations. Um, But yeah, those are just like the two myths I can think of off the top of my head.
0: What do you wish humans would do differently? Ah, yes. So, um, what I wish
1: that humans would do differently when it comes to sharks is um, to not lead with fear and to uh, lead more with like understanding and not always come at sharks from a fear perspective and come at it more from um a more knowledgeable perspective so for example in a lot of like news uh news outlets like they'll the headline will be like shark attacks surfer or deadly shark does this body surfer and knocks him off this thing and it's just all fear mongering so just the entire um, you know like sharks have this bad stigma because people want because, because a lot of the media um, will paint them as these you know evil creatures but I think that we can do a better job uh, with giving sharks a better name uh, not a bad name uh, because you know, it's um, you know, we we kind of we don't really like our perspective on sharks won't 100 percent affect their conservation. But, you know, it's their laws trying to be passed that protect sharks. And if people have this negative stigma or negative stereotype around sharks, it'll be harder to try and protect them and harder to really push for um their conservation. So I think that we need to do a better job with uh, leading with facts and not with fear and also just educating, uh, being open to the education about sharks. So um, I think like you know, uh, networks like Shark Week need to do a little bit better because a lot of their shows are fear mongering, talking about like shark attacks or talking about how like absolutely powerful these sharks are and like their bites and everything. But that's really, that's not all that sharks are about. Sharks are, are creatures that fit into specific niches in their environment. They're extremely important for our environment. And I think that, um, we need to do a better job at communicating that. So, um, yeah.
0: What do you hope this
1: episode sparks for listeners? Well, I hope that this episode sparks listeners to look more into sharks, uh, to kind of pursue your own quote-unquote research (laughs) when it comes to sharks. And um, hopefully you've also read my book. And I hope that that has sparked an interest in sharks and um, sparked an interest to dig deeper into certain species I might have talked about. Um, But, yeah, I really think – I really hope that after listening, uh, people – kind of have a different perspective on sharks and also a different perspective on myself as a scientist because a lot of people think scientists are you know these really boring like stuffy people but that's
0: that's not me (laughs) and that's not all scientists either
1: so um
0: yeah Thank you so much for being here today, Carly Jackson, and telling us about sharks and taking us through a day in their life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.